Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War Podcast. I'm your host, Des Latham. We are on episode 106. This is September 1901, and it's been a wet spring so far. This has dealt both Jan Smuts and Louis Boerter a blow, but things are about to improve for Smuts after his daring raid into the Cape Colony almost ended before it started, as you've heard. The number 17 shall feature strongly throughout. In this episode, we'll hear how the 17th Lancers, who were the first line of cavalry in the charge of the Light Brigade during the Crimean War, meet their match on the African felt. The day of the 17th of September dawned bright and sunny. The men of Jan Smuts's commando were cheerful as they rode into the sunshine, but there was little additional reason to be optimistic. General Haig and thousands of his men were searching the nearby hills and valleys for Smuts, and the Boer general knew time to act was ebbing away. His men were down to their last few rounds, and many were now on foot. Our intrepid narrator, Denise Reitz, who joined Smuts, was operating as one of the general's scouts as part of the quaintly named Rake section, or Rich section, and he realized how critical the situation was. As a fighting force, we were on our last legs. In front walked those who still had horses, dragging scarecrows behind them. Then came a trail of footmen in twos and threes, their saddles slung across their shoulders, and in the rear rode the wounded in charge of their friends. Still, the sun was shining. After a few miles, General Smuts ordered the rake section, Rates a small group of scouts, to ride ahead of the commando and look out for trouble. Rates and a few others managed to coerce their tired horses into a trot, and they rode out over the ridge. Further along, the hills flattened into open country, and a Dutch farmer suddenly emerged from a cottage at the side of the road. In a voice hoarse with excitement, he told us that English cavalry were waiting for us lower down. More importantly, the Dutch farmer said they were armed with both mountain guns and machine guns, and there were 200 mounted infantry, along with 300 mules and horses. For once, the information provided by a civilian proved to be 100% correct. Then they sent a single man back on the freshest horse. Edgar Dunker returned a short while later with Smuts, who wanted to talk to the farmer himself, along with his number two, Commandant van Dieventer, and about a dozen men. General Smuts immediately decided to attack, says Reitz, and I heard him say that if we did not get those horses and a supply of ammunition, we were done for. Van Dieventer, along with his dozen or so men in the mounted squad and the rake section, were ordered ahead once more to locate the English. Smuts waited for the rest of the commando to catch up. We set off at once, and in a few minutes reached the banks of a small river, which we crossed. As they moved through a fringe of thorn trees that formed a visual shield, they rode slap-bang into a group of around 20 mounted British soldiers cantering towards them. Five men, including Rates, were slightly ahead of the others, and they had seconds to react, with the English literally ten yards away. Opening fire, we brought down several, and the rest turned and galloped back down the road. I fired my last two cartridges here, and my first thought was to run to a dead soldier and seize his rifle and bandolier, abandoning my own rusty weapon. Then this little group charged after the retreating British, but their horses were in far better shape than the Boers' exhausted animals. The Boers were saved by a gate there in the middle of the felt, and the men could not jump this obstacle, so were shot down by the Boers. Three more Englishmen lay bleeding on the African felt. A handful escaped. Van Deventer and a small group then climbed a nearby copy to take stock, 
while Rates and about a dozen others galloped onwards towards a low, stony ridge further down the road. There the soldiers flung themselves off their horses and took to the rocks. Rates and his colleagues were now in the open and once again were forced to decide, fight or flight. They decided on the former. They galloped onwards, but things were going to get much hotter for our young narrator. Before we reached the outcrop, the soldiers opened fire almost point blank, and worse still, a mountain gun unexpectedly opened fire on us from a point to our left, not 30 yards off, and a machine gun rattled into action close by. They were caught in a classic field of fire position. However, the speed of their movement and the closeness meant the mountain gun could not lower its muzzle far enough, and the shells whizzed overhead. Still three Boers were shot down before they reached the rocks where the British unit lay, and let their horses go. It was going to be hand-to-hand fighting, but not before they caught sight of the English camp just below the ridge. It was buzzing like a beehive. Officers were shouting orders and men tumbling out of their tents, some running towards us, others going to the right and left to take their stations. Reitz and the rake section were now in what he calls a tight corner. They were far ahead of the main body, which could not reach the camp in time to save the Boer scouting party. Meanwhile, the English had recovered their composure and were sweeping the plain with rifle and machine gun fire. The result was our little party was stranded on the very edge of an armed encampment and practically mixed with the English soldiers. Fortunately for Reitz, General Smuts had summed up the situation and his men were charging to the rescue. In a few minutes, the commander opened fire from a hill in the rear and the British were forced to take cover instead of overrunning the rake section. It was helter-skelter as the Boers took up a half-moon-shaped position along the ridge overlooking the British camp. What has started out as a strong position for the British turned rapidly into a desperate fight for their lives. Reitz and a fellow Transvaaler called Muller could see that a mountain gun was close by and that the British manning the weapon had no idea that the two Boers were lying only feet away. Even if they had been spotted, had the gunners opened fire, they would have been shooting towards their own camp. So close were the Boer scouts. Standing behind the gun was a tall man handing shells to the three at the breach. I fired at him and he spun around and sank in a sitting position against the wheel where I found him dead when the fight was over. The other three gunners ran for the camp. Rach shot one more down while Muller brought down a second, but the third got away. And now a grim duel began as the British and Boers faced each other across a small ridge of rocks. They were an arm's distance apart. It would be another example of the kind of warfare that would characterize the Great War of 1914-1918. A bitter hand-to-hand and face-to-face struggle now developed. As the British raised their heads to fire, the Boers brought them down. More than a dozen British soldiers were killed in a few minutes, dozens more wounded. We did not suffer a single casualty, remarks Reitz. That was other than the three Boers wounded as they rode towards the rocks. The battle intensified. A large British sergeant ran out from the camp, big, heavily built, and Reitz shot him in the stomach. The poor man doubled up like a knife, as Reitz describes, and died quickly. Two more soldiers were shot down by Nicholas Swart, who lay close to Reitz. There was a young lieutenant a few feet from me. I found out afterwards that his name was Sheridan, and they said he was a cousin of Winston Churchill. Rates and Lieutenant Sheridan were in a duel to the death a few feet from each other. Sheridan rose twice and let off two shots at Rates, but missed. 
At his second attempt, a grazed his temple and he dropped out of sight, but only dazed, for in a moment he was up again, swaying unsteadily on his feet, with his face streaming with blood, but still trying to level his rifle at me. Rates hesitated, knowing that the man was probably not going to be able to get a proper shot in, and in that second, another Boer by the name of Jack Boreas shot the lieutenant through the head. Still, Lieutenant Sheridan would not fall without one more attack. The sudden shock made him leap up, and again Jack Boreas, who was wonderfully quick, shot him dead as he rose. In this manner, the terrible bloody fight went on until the Boers spotted more English troops approaching from the south. The Boers thought this was the advance guard of a much larger relief force. They had to overcome the camp quickly, or they were done for. In the light of a bright blue day then, the small band huddled behind the rocks and began to whisper together. Then Jack Boreas gave the signal, and they rose together, a final almost suicidal charge, leaping across the rocks and into the midst of the surviving British troops on the ridge. There were only 10 or 15 men left, and so far as I can remember, not a shot was fired on either side. The English survivors surrendered. They were so surprised by the sudden Boer action. Instead of taking the prisoners away, the Boer Reich squad ignored them and rushed directly into the tents in what surely must be reminiscent of the Battle of Saint Luana twenty years before. When they saw us among the tents in the area, something like a stampede set in. Soldiers went running in all directions, some making away into the thorn trees, others coming towards us and throwing down their arms. One man, an officer, made it to the horse lines and leapt aboard his animal, barebacked, flourishing a revolver, and then tried to ride off. I shouted at him to halt, but as he gave no heed, I shot him dead, says Rates simply. There was no glory in this, and Rates knew it. He was fighting for his life, and every British soldier was a threat. Smuts and his commando now entered the camp. The battle was almost over. However, there was one more bitter skirmish, and once more Reitz was in the middle of the firefight. He was joined by another Boer by the name of William Conradi, who scouted through the thorn bushes, searching for the British who'd fled in that direction. They came across a cattle kraal made of stones, behind which about a dozen British troops lay hidden. Hands up! shouted Reitz, but instead the soldiers opened fire back at the two Boers. In the exchange of rifle bullets, two more British troops were shot down, but they still did not surrender. For rushing across the kraal, they arranged themselves against the rear wall, which alone separated us, and one of them thrust a rifle so near my face that his shot scorched my cheek and neck with cordite, fragments of which had to be picked out for days afterwards with the point of a knife. Rates grabbed the muzzle of the rifle. He gave an oath and jerked it back so forcibly that the sharp foresight gashed the ball of my thumb and the palm of my hand, and I had to let it go. The situation was critical once more for Rates. He had survived the low rocky ridge with a handful of Boers. Now he and Conradi were isolated, facing a much larger group of British troops. Then we heard the sound of voices through the trees, and a number of our men came running up to see what the firing was all about. The British soldiers knew the game was up and threw their rifles over the stone wall. Except one who didn't know. He ran into Rates and both fell down in a heap. In another moment, he would have run around the corner, shooting us down while we were engaged with the men inside. He said I was a surprise packet, offered me a cigarette, and came with me to join his captured companions in the crawl with his hand amicably on my shoulder. Moments earlier, they were in mortal combat, 
Now they smoked a cigarette together. How bizarre was this war? General Smuts gave the order to ransack the tents, for the Boers needed everything, from ammunition to food, horses, supplies of all types. The British relief column never arrived, and the group of British riders stayed away from the camp, watching the looting from a distance, as Smuts's commando turned the tents inside out. We were like giants refreshed. We had ridden into action that morning at our last gasp, and we emerged refitted from head to heel. We all had fresh horses, fresh rifles, clothing, saddlery, boots, and more ammunition than we could carry away, as well as supplies for every man. Smuts had resupplied his commando through this attack, and his men had renewed confidence both in the general and in each other. One Boer had been killed in the attack, six wounded, whereas the British had lost 30 dead, more than 40 wounded, and about 100 others were prisoners. General Smuts now realised that his men had taken on a crack unit of the British cavalry, the 17th Lancers, the unit that had been cut to pieces in the notorious charge of the Light Brigade in the Crimean War. The cavalry regiment known as the Duke of Cambridge's Own had been raised in 1759. The regiment had been sent to North America in 1775 and fought in the Battle of Bunker Hill in June of that year. The 17th Lancers had fought with distinction in the American War of Independence and an officer of the regiment called Captain Stapleton had the distinction of delivering to George Washington the formal dispatch confirming the British declaration they would fight no more in America. They had campaigned in Jamaica, fighting uprisings of slaves, while in the Napoleonic War the regiment took part in the disastrous expeditions to Spanish-controlled South America, where they were forced to surrender in a battle attempting to capture Argentinian capital, Buenos Aires. The regiment was reclassified formally as the Lancers in India, then later fought in the Crimean War. It was part of the Light Brigade under the command of Major General the Earl of Cardigan and was the first line of cavalry on the left flank during the infamous charge of the Light Brigade at the Battle of Balaclava in October 1854. They had fought during the Anglo-Zulu War at the Battle of Ulundi in July 1879. Now the Sea Squadron had been confronted by a certain General Jan Smuts and the Rake Section and suffered a terrible defeat. As Raitz walked among the 17th Lancer tents, he came across the wounded, which included their commander, Captain Sanderman, as well as another officer, Lord Vivian. The latter was among the rocks when Raitz first rushed at the British on the ridge. Vivian then told Raitz what had happened way back in the first days of September, when the Basutu had ambushed Smuts. Vivian had found the remains of the three Boers who had been killed and then mutilated by the Basutu, and told Raitz of his horror. Then a remarkable thing happened. This British officer from the highest echelons of the British upper class gave Raitz his uniform. This was a symbol of respect. He pointed out his little bivouac tent and said that it would be worth my while to have a look at it. In modern warfare, of course, that could mean it was booby-trapped. But back in September 1901, their message was clear. I want you, as a respected foe, to take my goods because you are worthy. Inside the bivouac tent, Rates found a handsome cavalry tunic, riding breeches, and all the trimmings, a brand new Lee Metford rifle with full bandoliers, and more importantly, a superb horse. He also selected a second animal, a mule. For my experience during the past fortnight, it taught me that a good mule for long marches and a light, nimble pony for use in action were the ideal combination. General Smuts and his men were now well armed and refreshed. The shock of this action 
where the very symbol of the best of British cavalry had been defeated, was telegraphed across South Africa once more, and more frustration for Lord Kitchener, the officer in commanding British forces in the country. The Boers needed to bury the British dead. Rates walked back to the rocks where he came across the body of Lieutenant Sheridan and the other casualties. I also saw the dead gunners and other men whom I had shot, and I looked on them with mixed feelings. For although I have never hated the English, a fight is a fight, and though I was sorry for the men, I was proud of my share in the day's work. Thus rearmed and resupplied, General Smuts was going to prove to be a significant threat to the British in the Cape. He ordered that the remaining wagons and tents, along with the ammunition and mountain guns, as well as the machine guns, be destroyed and set ablaze. Then, leaving the prisoners, mule drivers and servants to shift for themselves, we rode off in triumph. There is no romance, really, in war, but the resonances and echoes of history reverberate across time. The cavalry unit that had meandered across the British Empire's great rise faced a guerrilla army of modern fighting men, and in the battle... There was both honour and failure. The 17th Lancers went down fighting. It is clear to all following these events in this three-year war that while remaining implacable enemies, both sides were also aware of the humanity of each other's position. The cavalry officer Vivian, respecting the courage of Rates, who remember was not yet 21. The older man, experienced in organised warfare, magnanimous in defeat, handing over his tunic, riding breeches, horse to the younger man, his enemy. Reitz and his Reich section colleagues, along with a handful of others, had been instrumental in routing the 17th Lancers, a regiment that would fight all the way through the First World War and then in 1922 would be amalgamated with the 21st Lancers. That regiment continued fighting through to the First Gulf War, its lengthy history dotted with victory and defeat. We have to call a halt. Next week, there'll be more about the actions of both the British and Boers across South Africa as September turns into October 1901. This war, and therefore the podcast series, has eight months to run, and still there's much to cover. Thanks to a listener who sent me notes about the Moors raffle, and John for helping pick a few edit errors. Thank you there. And Samuel, thanks again for the donation, and thank you, Greg, for your positive comments. If you'd like to support the podcast series, please head off to our website, abwarpodcast.com, and click on the PayPal button on the top right. I've refrained from seeking donations and talking about filthy lucre. However, the SoundCloud professional hosting platform I use comes with a fee, and any small amount will help cover these costs. Otherwise, please rate the podcast on iTunes and write a review if you're really motivated. And you can also contact me directly on Twitter at Des Latham. Until next week, goodbye. Daar onder een dimmel is